welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Micah, if we haven't met. I'm one of the pastors here at Awaken. And uh, fresh off a trip to Colorado, we all made it there and back, which is great. Um, and this morning, I have the privilege to introduce a friend, Jer Swigert, to you. Jer uh, is a Midwest transplant to the West Coast. Evidently went to Northwestern College. Go Eagles. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that, but currently lives in Bend, Oregon with his family. Uh, former church planter in San Francisco and then uh, wrote a book called Mending the Divides uh, in 2017 and is currently the director of an organization called the Global Immersion Project. So um, many, many of our friends know Jer and have, uh, he's been to the Twin Cities quite a bit and I'm excited to have him here at Awaken this morning. So if you would please give a warm welcome to our friend Jer Swigert. Well, good morning, everybody. I feel like uh, when God created, his playlist was the marimba, because that was just absolutely epic, you know? Amazing. And if Mandy can still hear me, she needs to preach. Are you with me, friends? She needs to preach. Good. Uh, I, I want to begin this morning by talking about the power of the Spirit, but maybe in a little bit different way than most of us are accustomed to. Um, I'll begin in Isaiah chapter 61, so take out your Bible or your device, go to Isaiah 61, I'm just going to read the first couple verses, and listen for what the Spirit might actually be up to on the planet, right? Um, 61, uh, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Friends, the Spirit, when the Spirit is at work, the Spirit is not doing the work of bringing about internal tranquility and a sense of external stability to privileged folk. But instead, when the Spirit is at work, the Spirit is 100% committed to the work of transformation for the sake of liberation and restoration. When the Spirit is at work, the Spirit isn't just making us feel good and at ease and comfortable and safe. When the Spirit is actually roaming untamed among us, the Spirit is transforming us, not in an end unto itself, but transforming us so that we can join God in remaking the world. All right? That's, that's a faith that's actually worth my life. I wasn't given that understanding of Jesus nor the Spirit, so I thought the Spirit was just kind of this thing that I could hold the monopoly on. The Spirit would make me feel comfortable until I die and go to be with Jesus for the rest of my life. But the fact of the matter is the Spirit is actually hyper-consumed with liberation and restoration on the planet here and now and has actually invited us to co-create with the Spirit so that broken things get fixed on the planet. Right? So that's a Spirit that I'm actually interested in and I want to explore a little bit uh, today. Uh, we're in this series where we're talking about hard things that Jesus said. So, uh, so we're going to watch how the Spirit actually provokes Jesus into an uncommon place, far beyond his margins of comfort and safety for the sake of Jesus' transformation. And when he's there, he says some crazy stuff uh, that will be offensive. It should be offensive to us, but we're going to wonder about it here um, a little bit. I want to begin, though, in Mark chapter 1. So flip over, if you would. To Mark chapter 1, which is like this, um, this beautiful new beginning in the life of Jesus. He's maybe 30-something. Uh, he's walking alongside the, the Jordan River, and his cousin John the Baptizer sees him. And in one of the Gospels says, look, this is the Lamb of God. 
Like, this is the one that I've been talking about. This is the one who's going to take away the sins of the world. This is the agent of restoration. This is the Prince of Peace. And Jesus enters the, the waters of the Jordan, and John the Baptist baptizes him. And in Mark chapter 1, uh, Mark writes that in that moment, the heavens were severed. Now, the only other place that that verb is used is when the, the veil in the temple is torn at the point of Jesus' death. Right? And when the veil is torn, what did that do for the people? It gave them access to the power and the presence of God. Right? So when Jesus is baptized and the heavens are severed, that means that there's a new kind of access that's now available. And the Spirit descended like a dove, not as a dove, but like a dove, whatever that actually looked like. And then a voice from the heavens said, Behold, this is my beloved Son, which I love because Jesus hadn't done anything yet. So before Jesus had done anything, he was already declared the beloved, which means that Jesus' life was not in pursuit of belovedness. Jesus was just simply living out of the reality that he was the beloved. So there's an anointing, a new inauguration that's happening with Jesus. And then the Spirit provokes Jesus to the wilderness. That's not the verb that's used in the scriptures, but I use the word provoked because how many of you have been to the Judean wilderness? You need to be provoked to go and spend any amount of time in the Judean wilderness. It is stark, dry, hot. It's like the sun is always cooking you even in the night because the rocks absorb it and they burn you from the bottom up when the, when the stars are out. I mean, you have to be provoked to go to the wilderness, keeping in mind the wilderness is a place of transformation, right? So the Spirit provokes this newly baptized Jesus who's wearing the mantle of belovedness into the wilderness for the sake of his transformation, the Spirit knows that if you're going to live as the beloved, you're going to have to figure out what it means to become fluent in my voice. You're going to have to know how to live dependent upon the Spirit because there's a broken world that we're about to remake with one another. And the only way this baby's going to work is if you are actually tuned to the sound of my voice. So the life of the beloved, it's not just this place of privilege for some of us. The life of the beloved is costly and it demands that we develop a dependency on the voice of the Spirit, right? And so, after Jesus is there for like 40 days, 40 nights, you know, he's interacting with the deceiver, it gets a little bit dicey, then the Spirit provokes Jesus to go home. Now, I'm, I'm home right now in Minnesota, uh, and when I return home, there's a sense of familiarity for me here like I'm driving the streets here and I'm remembering things like this is a place where my identity was shaped where it's saturated with people who know me and love me and help contribute to my formation but for Jesus returning home it was dangerous here's why because while he's in the wilderness his cousin John the baptizer has been thrown into prison by Herod Antipas who's like a playboy's paranoid schizophrenic politician and, and Herod Antipas, he's got this problem with infidelity, and John the baptizer tells him the truth about it. And Herod Antipas doesn't like it when people tell him the truth about him. And so Herod Antipas takes John the baptizer and throws him into the dungeons. He doesn't kill him, though, because he kind of digs John the baptizer. So Herod Antipas, this kind of poser, fraud, mini-me leader, throws the cousin into prison, hoping, hoping to silence the movement. And Jesus hears that his cousin has been thrown in the dungeons, and he says, okay, I'm coming to town. You think you can silence this movement by putting my cousin in jail? Like, you have no idea what you're up against. 
So Jesus, the epicenter of the movement, comes to town, right? In Luke chapter 4, he goes to his hometown called Nazareth, and when he enters the city, he goes to the synagogue, because that's the custom for folk, and and it happens to be the moment where they're gathering to to study the the Torah, the scriptures together, and um, someone brings him the Isaiah scrolls. So Jesus unrolls the scrolls to Isaiah chapter 61. The passage I just read, which is, a, which is a, a messianic prophecy, right? Like when the Messiah is here, broken stuff gets fixed. Blind people see, deaf people hear, mute people speak, lame people get up and walk. Freedom and liberation emerges for the oppressed and the occupied, right? He reads that passage, rolls the scrolls back up, hands them to the attendant, and then sits down because he's about to teach. And every eye in the synagogue is on him. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 4 that today in its reading this prophecy has been fulfilled. Jesus claims messianic prophecy. Now when was the last time y'all were in a room when somebody gets up on a stage, reads messianic prophecy and says, I am the fulfillment of that? we would immediately think mental illness and we would disregard everything else that this person has to say, right? But in this particular passage, if you look at Luke chapter 4, when Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy, the people are awestruck. They're like, wow, we know his parents. Could it be that this young man has now become the Messiah, and they're excited about it. So you start to talk about messianic prophecy, and and you claim it, and the people are like, yeah, we're behind you. But then Jesus continues to talk to them, and he says this. He says, you know, back in the day, in the day of Elijah, one of the prophets, right? In the day of Elijah, there were famines all of the time here. And there there were impoverished widows, and they were hungry. And when the Spirit sent Elijah the prophet to a widow... Elijah didn't, Elijah didn't go to a widow within the bloodline. He didn't, he didn't go to a, a Jewish, an Israelite widow. He went outside of the bloodline. So God sent the prophet outside of the bloodline to meet somebody's need. And he goes, oh, and, and you know, like in, in our history, there have been lepers, communities of lepers all of the time. But in the, in the days of Elisha, the next prophet, when God sent Elisha to bring restoration to a leper, he didn't send Elisha to a leper inside the family. He sent Elisha to a leper outside the family, a Syrian king named Naaman. And it's when he begins to talk about how the Spirit is actually moving us beyond the bloodline to people outside of the bloodline, that's when they went from like admiration to utter hatred. So you talk about messianic prophecy, we're with you. You talk about how God's restorative wingspan goes beyond who we thought, now we're going to kill you. Little bit of resonance in the world that we live in today, especially within dominant culture, American Christianity. There is us and there is them. And God is for us, but you start talking about God for them, now we're going to get hot and bothered. In Jesus' case, they literally escorted him out of the city to a precipice and were ready to push him over. And I love in Luke 4 that it says that Jesus walked through the crowd. <laughs> he like walked through and, you know, so however that works, I don't know. But it's interesting, right? You, t- you claim messianic prophecy, we're with you. You talk about God's love beyond us. 
Now we want to kill you. Go back to Mark chapter 1. Jesus goes to a little village called Capernaum, which is about 30 miles or so from Nazareth. Um, and it's literally a village like three times the size of this room. And he begins to develop a, a community of people, a, a community of action and reflection. And he begins to live them into this restorative movement. He teaches them how to live this way, not by like just talking to them, but by demonstrating what it means to be a, par a part of liberation and restoration. And, um, and popularity begins to surge, right? Because when Jesus shows up, broken stuff gets fixed. And so the crowds, they're turning into multitudes. And, um, and Jesus is doling out like restorative stuff all the time. And then in Mark 1, there, there gets to a point where Jesus withdraws into solitude because Jesus knows that the life of the beloved is not a life that's built on power and popularity and platform and prestige, but instead it's a costly way. It demands ongoing transformation, and it's easy to be seduced by the applause of people. So Jesus pulls himself back and, um, and is interacting with the voice of the Spirit, but his disciples pursue him and say, Jesus, this is a PR moment. Popularity is surging. What are you doing hiding? And, uh, and Jesus looks at him and says, the Spirit is provoking us on, is moving us on from this place, and uh, honestly is moving us into all of the wrong places, tables with sinners, relationships with those exploited by politics and religion, those who are oppressed by poverty, those whose bodies are literally malformed. Like, the Spirit is moving us in the, in the direction of those who have been marginalized. And so they spend the rest of the three years working with all of the wrong people in all of the wrong places. One of those moments brings us to Matthew chapter 15. So go with me uh, over to Matthew chapter 15. And um, in, in the passage... Jesus is actually talking about how God prefers compassion over superhuman discipline. Like, he, he's, he's teaching in Matthew chapter 15 that it's more important to be in relationship, in generous, hospitable relationships. That's a, that's a truer act of faithfulness than being right all of the time. So he's talking about, it's not the, uh, he's talking about cleanness and uncleanness, and he's beginning to reframe people's understanding of what all of this is about, who's clean and who's unclean. And then in Matthew 15, verses 21 uh, and following, Jesus went away from there where he was teaching these things and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. She's crying out after us. And he answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Uh, it, it's a passage that makes Jesus sound more like a, like a redneck bigot than the Prince of Peace, huh? So uh, let's talk about it. First of all, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's odd. I mean, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, right? They would all know it's not a vacation destination for our people. 
Matter of fact, Tyre and Sidon, this is like code word for pagan land. This is where you go if you want your faith to become contaminated, if you want to compromise your standing with God, or if you want to be disqualified from the movement altogether, step foot in Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus withdrew to this place that popular religious understanding would say, go there and you're in the wrong place. It's odd, right? Or is it possible that the Spirit is actually provoking Jesus into an uncommon territory? Is it possible that the Spirit is provoking Jesus beyond his own margins for comfort and safety and the familiar for a particular reason? And then Matthew writes, he encounters a Canaanite woman. Now this is the only time that the word Canaanite, that adjective, is used in the entire New Testament. And again, Matthew is writing to a Jewish community. So what is a Jewish community thinking when they hear the word Canaanite? Play back to our Sunday school stories of Joshua fighting the battles of Jericho and like the conquest of the promised land and all of these things that we have childhood songs about. Canaanites are dangerous enemies. They are everything dangerous. They are the antithesis of godliness. Canaanites are less than human. So Jesus literally has been provoked by the Spirit into enemy territory. Now, that would be the Jewish understanding of, of what Matthew is saying. What do you think the Canaanite woman, how does she understand herself? Does she understand herself as the foreigner or the indigenous one? Does she understand herself as dangerous or does she look at Jesus who actually in this moment is the representation of the occupier, the oppressor, the people who have crushed her people for millennia, right? So perspective is interesting, isn't it? She doesn't understand herself as the dangerous enemy other. She understands herself as an indigenous mother who is now face-to-face -face with the, the epitome of her occupier and oppressor. This is the only time in the entire scriptures where Jesus is actually the dominant culture oppressor or the representative of that. So Jesus, the Spirit provokes Jesus into an encounter with the enemy other indigenous mother for a reason. And when he arrives, this woman screams, Lord, son of David, have mercy. And she does it really loudly. Now, I don't know how many of you have been in places where marginalized communities are loud. They're making noise because they are so desperate, because they have been oppressed for so long that all of the things that they've tried haven't worked. So they're at a place of such desperation that they will go to extreme measures to get the attention of anybody who can change their reality. Are you proximate with these people? Do you know what I'm talking about? We sit behind our screens and we say, be quiet, you're being too loud. If you would just change your techniques a little bit, maybe you would garner a listenership. But they're at a place where they're saying, I've tried everything. I am desperate. And so I will do whatever it takes for you to hear me because I think that you maybe could change my reality. So she's crystal clear on who Jesus is and she's really, really loud. Which isn't it interesting that it's in pagan land where someone is crystal clear on who the Messiah is while in Israel, everybody is refuting the legitimacy of Jesus. So she is screaming, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And... Um, and Jesus, in, in uh, verse 23, remains silent. 
there's not very many times throughout the scriptures where we see Jesus like kind of stunned into silence. That's the indication of the language here. This is happening and Jesus is jarred. Now, here's what's going on from my perspective inside of Jesus. And let's, let's, um, let's keep Jesus as God, but also recognize he's fully human. So I can resonate with the human side of Jesus. In this moment, a God reality is colliding with a social reality. The God reality is that God is for all human beings, despite creed, origin, orientation, and everything else. God is a pro-human God. That's the God reality. The social reality is that Gentiles are less than human. They're unclean. They exist outside of God's restorative wingspan. So a a, a divine truth, a godly truth is colliding with a social reality and I'm going to argue that that actually created a moment of disequilibrium for Jesus. He's destabilized by it. So, and, and in that moment, pay attention to the fact that Jesus doesn't fill the space with sound. He doesn't rationalize. He doesn't bring up anything. He remains silent. And so perhaps the Spirit provokes Jesus into this encounter with an indigenous mother uh, to destabilize him, to shake him up a little bit. And notice that when he's shaken up, he doesn't justify anything. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't scream anything back. He doesn't ignore her. He's silent. And so what does it mean for us in moments where we're destabilized when a God reality collides with a social reality? What does it mean to take a minute Don't scream back on Facebook or whatever we do. Take a minute. Recognize there's something going on inside of me right now. Right? So Jesus is is silent, um, but, but the church isn't silent. So the community, Jesus' disciples, they come up to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, you've got to do something about this lunatic. She's too loud, you know? So I'm wondering for the church... Are, are, they, are they giving voice to like the implicit bias and the racism inside of them? Because let's undeify the disciples. These are a bunch of blokes who like, they don't know which way is up. And they're, they're men and women who are actually impacted by the social structures of the time. They, were, they would have been people who would have looked at this Gentile Canaanite woman as a half-breed, as a half-human, right? They didn't see the image of God in her, most likely. So in them saying, get rid of her, maybe two things are going on. One, they're giving voice to their own racism. Like, we gotta, we're not even supposed to be here, much less talking, much less dealing with this woman who's in pain. Who cares about her pain? We've got better things to do. The other thing is, when somebody is loud, it creates kind of an aura of chaos, and it destabilizes our, our sense of tranquility. So I can imagine that their own sense of comfort was a priority to them. And so whether it was implicit bias and their racism, or it was, and or it was their need for a return to tranquility and stability. We don't know. What we do know is that their comfort tr- trumped the oppression and the affliction of somebody who was literally hurting. Their comfort was more important to them than her pain. Are we resonating th- with this church? Is this at all relevant to us in the world that we live in right now? Okay. So... Here's what goes on. So there are two requests that have been offered to Jesus. One is like, would you have mercy on me because my daughter's oppressed and it's killing us both. And now he's got the request from the church saying, would you make the oppressed person be quiet, please? Because it's destabilizing. It's uncomfortable for us. And finally, Jesus speaks. But he doesn't address anyone. 
And when Jesus speaks, here's, here's what he says. Um, let me find it. Ah, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So what Matthew is doing here is he's, it's almost like a Shakespearean soliloquy. So it's like Matthew is giving voice to the internal monologue that Jesus is having. And so when Jesus says, I've only been sent to the lost sheep, I want you to imagine with me that like a Shakespearean theater where the lights go dark, Jesus steps forward into the light and he's wondering. It's like we get to hear the internal wondering. And the internal wondering is Jesus talking about like, what is my mission really? Because the best thing, I thought that the best thing that I could do for the Gentiles later is to focus on Israel now. If I heal this Gentile in enemy territory, it could prematurely expand the mission. And I thought I was supposed to just be here for Israel. Right? So he's beginning to wonder about what is the immediacy of my restorative touch? Is God's wingspan going to actually reach to these people right now? Jesus is destabilized. He's wondering out loud, right? So at this point, we have three crises. The oppression of the enemy other indigenous mother. We've got, um, we've got the, the comfort, the crisis of comfort for the church. And then we've got this internal crisis for Jesus where it's literally making him ask some significant questions. And the Canaanite woman, she takes advantage of this moment. She recognizes that Jesus hasn't said no, that he hasn't gotten rid of her. She senses that Jesus probably doesn't think as poorly of her as, as the church does. And so she leverages the, the, the moment and she moves toward Jesus, bows in a posture of worship and says, Lord, help me. In other words, she's saying, I don't understand what you're talking about with like mission and lost sheep and all the things. But I actually think that you came to my context maybe for this encounter. So I'm going to hedge my bets that that's true. I'm going to actually get closer to you. So that's what she does. That's what she does. She says, Lord, help me. And Jesus speaks again again in like a Shakespearean soliloquy kind of way. So, so stage goes dark, she, he steps up and goes, ah, but the, like it's not right to throw the bread for the family to the dogs. Now, in the language, he's actually using the female form of the word dog, which doesn't translate well into Sunday sermons. <laughs> right? So, like, this is like redneck bigot crazy. This is a tough saying of Jesus. Couple of questions. Is Jesus in this moment giving voice to the nationalism and the prejudice and the racism and the hatred of Israel? Of the church, his own community? And is Jesus might, is he not also giving voice to his own bias? Now, before you run me out of the room, I think it's irresponsible for us to imagine that Jesus somehow spent his entire life hovering above the systems and structures of his day. Remember, Jesus grew up in an impoverished home, in an impoverished village, where his dad was a carpenter, which doesn't mean that he built tables and like wooden houses. It meant that he was a mason. He worked with stone and he built major edifices out of stone. If, it's, if the timing is right, it's really likely that Joseph spent much of his career rebuilding a village called Sepphoris, which is just a stone's throw from Nazareth. 
They had to rebuild Sepphoris because Sepphoris got a bit too revolutionary for the Roman Empire. So the Romans came in and completely destroyed the city. No stone was left on another. And then they rounded up 300 men, women, and children, dipped them in tar, crucified them, and lit them on fire, which meant that the night sky was light as day for two weeks. So you want to tell me that Jesus, who grew up a little kid, rebuilding that city among other masons, blue-collar impoverished workers who are irritated by the empire, who don't have a lot of respect for the Gentiles, probably have a lot of hatred, probably throwing a bunch of jokes around just to kind of destabilize or, or, or bring a sense of stability to their own understanding. Like, these are, these are guys who are probably talking trash about anybody who's not Israel, and Jesus is in the midst of that. Like, you want to tell me that that doesn't impact his humanity? You want to tell me that it doesn't impact his, his structures of other and enemy? And so is it possible that the Spirit provokes Jesus into enemy territory because Jesus needed to be transformed? Now, you might say, whoa, are you calling Jesus a racist? I mean, there's a lot of racism that exists within me. Racism that exists within us, it probably isn't sin uh, in and of itself. It's when we act out of that racism that it becomes sin. So, like, there is stuff, bias, prejudice, um, racism, all of this stuff, it's it's ingrained in us because of our upbringings, because of the, the air that we breathe and the social media and media source water that we swim in. This stuff gets inside of us. It shapes the way that we see the world, God, ourselves, and other people, right? And so is it possible that the Spirit provokes Jesus beyond his margin of comfort and safety because Jesus needed to be transformed? Now, Jesus needed to be transformed. Well, Luke chapter 2 talks about Jesus as a young kid mucking it up with like the the teachers, like the the priests and stuff. And they admire his, his wisdom, but then it says, but Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. Is there ever a moment where Jesus stopped becoming? Is there ever a moment where he was done being transformed? And so, um, now here's, here's what happens. So she, he offers this bigoted statement, and it, maybe it's offering voice to Israel, maybe it's offering voice to his own bias. He's obviously troubled, and again, she leverages the moment. So again, she draws near one more time. She refuses to believe that the racism and the arrogance and the prejudice of the Jesus community, and maybe Jesus' own bias, is enough. Like, she doesn't believe, she refuses to believe that that shuts her down. She refuses to believe that Jesus thinks poorly of her. She believes that if she continues to move toward Jesus, he'll continue to move toward her. And here's what she does. She uses his own words to turn the table because, remember, Jesus didn't call her a street dog. He referred to her as a a dog, and so she says, yeah, but if I'm a dog and I'm eating the scraps, that means that we're in the same room, sharing the same meal. She's actually equalizing them, or she's trying to, and that's the moment in the text where Jesus wakes up out of the soliloquy. He's no longer in a moment of crisis because now it says, he, Jesus, answered her. Your faith has saved you. And then he, and so Jesus in that moment is transformed. Something transforms with him, but his transformation wasn't the end. It led to the liberation and restoration of the enemy, other indigenous mother, and her daughter. Transformation for the sake of liberation and restoration. Friends, the Spirit provoked Jesus to move beyond his margins of safety 
and comfort, and it was there in relationship with the enemy other that he was transformed and then got to join God in remaking the world. And if that's true about Jesus, then I'm going to make an argument that it is very likely that the, that the Spirit is provoking us, predominantly dominant culture Christian people, to move far beyond our margins of comfort and safety for the sake of our own transformation. You want to join God in remaking the world? We have to actually move out of our homogenous incubators and in next to the people who have been marginalized by our systems because I'm coming to discover that they're clearer on Jesus than I have ever been. That they are practicing a faith that is actually worth my life. I'm recognizing that it is in the context of relationship with all of the wrong people that I am being transformed and then beginning to develop relationships where we are co-creating liberation and restoration. Let me introduce you to just a few of those people. Uh, first picture is, is a friend of mine named Ben. Um, oh, there's, the, there's our Canaanite friend. She's actually a contemporary Syrian refugee in the Zatari refugee camp in Jordan. But I mean, let's, let's modernize her for a moment. Go to the next picture. This is... Uh, uh, picture before that, there's a, there's a black guy with his fist up, Sean, if you can find that. That's Ben. So Ben is, um, ben is a pastor activist in the streets of Oakland. And, um, and he's, he's the one that, had, in relationship with him, he's teaching me that Jesus looks nothing like me. Thanks be to God. But that Jesus was actually a dark-skinned Palestinian Jew who, who lived on the underside of empire. Jesus was not proximate to power. Jesus was actually on the underside of it. And he, he, re, he led the revolution from the underside up. Next slide. This is my friend Milad, who's a Palestinian refugee. And he's helping me understand that Jesus knows what it means to be a Middle Eastern refugee who is, whose life depends on the benevolence of foreign hospitality. Next slide. This is my friend Dee McIntosh here in, in Minneapolis. She's the one that helps me understand the practice of lament. Learning, I'm learning how to lament because she recognizes that Jesus lamented not just because he felt bad about the things happening in the world, he lamented because he was proximate to the pain. So the pain of his people, the pain of those he was close to got inside of him and it altered his DNA and he grieved the fact that things were not yet as they were going to be. But lament, friends, is not just a deep sadness. Lament is a, is a fiery worship practice. Because it's in the process of lament that compassion is generated, and compassion is the precursor to responsibility. It's the high-octane fuel that moves us from sadness to making a difference about it. Next slide. This is my friend Dominique. Many of you probably know Dominique. He's an ECC guy. Um, Dominique is the one who, through his, our friendship and through his recent book, is helping me understand that Jesus understood unjust criminal justice systems that he felt the flesh-tearing impacts of the whips and actually died as a victim of capital punishment, right? So we, I, was given, I was given a dominant culture picture of Jesus who hovered above the systems. My non-dominant culture friends are helping me discover a Jesus that is more authentic and is actually worth my life. Next slide. This is my friend John. John is the executive director of the National AIDS Memorial Grove in San Francisco. He's a gay man who's HIV positive. And he's helping me understand that the Jesus that's worth our life is a Jesus who actually walked with and continues to walk with those who suffer. He doesn't identify as a follower of Jesus, but he sure understands Matthew 25, where Jesus says, do you want to find me or be found by me? Go to the marginalized, for there I am. Right? Next slide. 
This is Jim Bear Jacobs, a Mohican pastor here in the Twin Cities. He's the one that's taught me that this book right here is not a dominant culture manual. This is an indigenous manual written by oppressed, occupied, marginalized people as they're sorting out what does it mean to follow the God who created us in the midst of severe oppression. And Jim Bear said to me the other day, he goes, you know, people who look like you have brought this book to people who look like me for a long time and said, let me tell you what this says. He said, what y'all need to be doing, you dominant culture Christian folk, is you need to bring this book to the, to the indigenous communities and say, can you teach me what this says? Because their lenses are dialed to understand this better than us. Next slide. My friend Maha from the Bay Area, um, she's, a, she's a, a Muslim faith leader. And she's the one that's helping me understand that all of our faith systems, despite creedal difference, the thing that we have, share in common is love of neighbor and that we all must declare holy war on the darkest parts of ourselves. Right? Let, next slide. It's my friend Gerwin. Gerwin is a Sikh uh, faith leader here. Um, not Sikh unhealthy, Sikh as in Sikhism. Fifth largest religion in the world. Gerwin is helping me understand that like we have got to figure out how to leverage the commonality that we are all human made in the image of the divine. If we can start there rather than in like Genesis 3 where everything goes haywire, if we can start with a common reality that I'm human and a beloved image bearer, and if that's true about me, that's true about you, that's true about my family, that's true about my friends, that's true about my others, and that's true about my enemies. That actually helps me move toward people. See, it's in relationships with people like these that I'm learning these things that are transforming me because the Spirit has provoked me beyond the margins of safety and comfort into legitimate relationship, but my transformation is not the end. See, together, we are actually a part of co-creating the world that's marked by liberation and restoration. So friends, if you want to continue to be a safe, comfortable community of Jesus people who are Minnesota nice and socially satisfied, please continue to exist in your homogenous incubators. But if you want to join God in remaking the world, then we have to learn what it means to follow the promptings of the Spirit beyond our margins of comfort and safety and into reality, for there is the place where we're transformed. If you are interested in taking a journey in that direction, or if you want to enhance the journey that you're already on, my team with the Global Immersion has put together a practice-based resource, and the way that you can get it is you can take out your phone, you can text the word PEACE to the number 66866. Text the word PEACE to the number 66866 and we'll get you a guide for the journey. That's God's word for us um, this morning. I want to invite us to consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in all of this and then ask yourself, what am I going to do about it? What's the Spirit saying to me? And what am I going to do about it? The greatest truth this morning, friends, is that you're beloved before you've even done anything. But as the beloved, demand your transformation. The Spirit will accompany you in that because the Spirit roams untamed, because the Spirit's fixated on liberation and restoration and wants us to be a part of it. Follow her as she roams this week. Be transformed. See the world differently. 
and then walk back into these doors a week from now with stories to tell. Bless you, friends, as you go. online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.